0: And now, The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome to The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Welcome, you happy warrior. You heroic men enduring the scorching days of summer and the frigid days of winter. You happy warriors who go to work every morning, early, regardless of whether you feel like it, disciplining yourself and improving yourself, watching over your spouse and children if you have them, and taking care of business, generating cash flow, and doing what your head tells you to do when your head tells you it must be done. You happy warriors who ignore your heart's desire to indulge the body's seductive whisper instead you boldly heed the clarion call of responsibility to those you are strong enough to support and brave enough to love you are the army of the righteous you are the noble knights defending the fortress of civilization against the hungry hordes of scheming and surging savages trying to invade and conquer what you and your fathers have built. The barbarians know that even after they destroy the civilization you built as they wretchedly crawl through its wrecked ruins, they will still live better than in anything they could ever have built for themselves. Only you stand between the nightmare of socialistic slavery and the bright hope of tomorrow. And you beautiful and brave women resisting government's treacherous proposal to marry it rather than accepting a golden ring from one clear-eyed man dreaming of a shared tomorrow. You gorgeous and courageous women who smilingly and graciously carry the load of work, marriage, family, inspiring your man to greatness and nurturing your young ones to moral maturity as well as physical. Yes, you happy warriors, men and women, who do all this and have done all this, you are the natural audience for the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. You are the audience I devotedly serve— recognizing that every day that I can bring you the helpful, life-affirming insights of ancient Jewish wisdom, well, that is another day of privilege for me. Because you are not a tennis ball floating down the gutter of life, you have your hand on the steering wheel of your life. As William Ernest Henley's great poem Invictus ends, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul, because you are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. It is my honor to serve you all and my delight to welcome you to another episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. Yes, that's right. This is the only show in the entire digital universe that reveals how the world really works. This is the only show in the world which offers you calisthenics for the contemplative and strenuous stretching for the soul. I will stand beside you as you attempt speculative somersaults of the spirit. That is how the world really works. And so we move into the subject of today, which is the five rules for raising absolutely fantastic children. That's right. Now, I have to explain something. Before we start on the five rules, you've got to know that I am going to lay out the best practices model, and then I'm going to leave it to you to adjust for whatever are your own circumstances, even if they are less than perfect. You see, we've all made mistakes in life. That's part of living. It's unavoidable. And I know full well that there are many, many single moms doing a valiant job, devoting themselves to trying to raise their children. There are many people who are divorced. There are people who are on a second marriage, sometimes maybe even a third marriage, with all the perils and the challenges that that brings, I realize life isn't perfect, but it makes more sense for me to present an ideal model and then you make the adjustments for your own particular circumstances rather than I try and present five rules for raising great children um, you know, if, if you work night shift as a court bailiff and uh, are never home and uh, you're a single dad and uh, you're also on, uh, on, on welfare. Okay, these things happen. I realize that. But you are smart enough to be able to make the adjustment. It's a little bit like trying to cross an ocean on a sailboat you really want to go with an accurate chart, and you also want to go with an accurate compass. Now, I will assure you that when one is sailing a small sailboat on the open ocean, you really cannot possibly steer to, shall we say, one degree of accuracy, right? There's 90 degrees between north and east, And uh, a degree is really quite small. Now, admittedly, over a long distance, a degree error can lead up to a huge error. But you see, you're not supposed to go a huge distance without rechecking your position. I would recheck our position regularly at noon every day, unless the sun wasn't visible. If It was very overcast or raining. But otherwise, uh, I checked the position every day. And you try and steer as best you can. I'll tell you honestly, hand steering a sailboat, I, I'm, I'm going to say I, I feel lucky if I can steer to within three to five degrees of the desired course. It's just hard. And, uh, and so maybe I should head out with a compass that's, you know, sort of accurate to about five degrees. No, no, it's best to have a 100% accurate compass. And even though you are uh, still going to um, make errors and mistakes, you adjust. But it's best to go with instruments that are exact. You know, if you're if you're building a house, you know, you know you're not working to one millimeter of accuracy. You know that the ceiling height in every room in your house is going to vary slightly by who you know you know maybe as much as an inch or two. Uh, That just happens when you're building because you don't build to that accuracy. It's not needed. But how about if the architect gave you the blueprints for the house and said, you know what? These are accurate to about six inches. No, that doesn't work. Errors compound. It becomes messy. And so I tell you that by way of explanation for why it is that I'm going to describe it in best terms, even though. We don't all live in an idealized best world situation, and so uh, adjustments will be made. Let me, let me give you um, an, an idea. Um, I'm going to be speaking of a two-parent family, a mother married to her children's father, even though that might not be the position in which you might find yourself but at least if you have the best blueprint, you're going to modify it and apply it more effectively than if we start off by my presenting to you second-rate compromises and half-hearted hybrids and jumbled confusion. No, that's really not an effective way to do it. Um, you know, like I said, you know, you're trying to navigate the Atlantic from Miami to Funchal, Madeira. Uh, that's three thousand nautical miles, approximately, and to get there, you're supposed to steer, shall we say, about 83 degrees, and um, and now that you know that, and you have a compass, you know, off you go. But if we start off saying, "Eh, you know what, go roughly east, you know, magnetic east. And no, start off with accurate directions, even if it's difficult to actually um, apply them. So, yes, life is difficult. It's difficult to apply the rules of life. It's difficult to get everything right. And all of us, you know, we all live compromises in a way. All of us live lives that might not be exactly everything we dreamed of when we were 11 years old. But we are mature and uh, we, we build successful lives given the circumstances we find ourselves in. So yes, I really know that not everyone is married and Not everyone who is married is on their first marriage, and not everyone on their first marriage married as a virgin, and not everyone who did that. All right, I I get it. I, I know all that. But with all that said and done, I do think enough of you to know that you can more reliably navigate with accurate charts and instruments, regardless of where you are. And so that is why it is. I'm not. I'm not being insensitive to people with different life circumstances. There's a lot of different variations out there. I get that, but uh, you will be able to make the most of it if you have at least the accurate chart. And the accurate chart is what I'm going to give you now. Uh, there've been huge distortions in the culture. You know, its words don't always mean exactly what you thought they mean, and so uh, I will always try and be as precise as I can. Um, for instance, you know, here's a story that uh, happened recently in Orlando, Florida, um, where a a man and a woman come in to eat in a restaurant. Um, together with an eleven-year-old child, and uh, the waiter who, who who runs that rest well, he was the guy who runs the restaurant, but he was also acting as waiter. Um, he, he took the order from the man and the woman, and then he said, "What about the boy?" And the the man said, no he'll eat at home later." But then uh, she, th- this woman, noticed. Um, you know, the, the kid looked a little bit frightened and, and even had a few cuts on him. So she became concerned. Um, so uh, um, she thought, I've got to do something. So what does this interesting woman do? She writes a note on a piece of paper saying, do you need help? And she stands behind the um, the two adults, so they wouldn't see her, and that she holds us up, so the eleven-year-old child can see it. He initially shook his head, but a little while later, she came back and held the note again, and this time he shook his head yes, nodded affirmatively, and so she called nine eleven. And she she said, look, I'm just concerned. I don't know what to do. Can you give me some guidance? The boy's got some bruises. He's not eating. Uh, the adults are eating. Okay, uh, bottom line is, uh, the boy was the woman's son. The man was the woman's boyfriend, recent boyfriend. And yes, he had been beating the kid. I think we know already that in the United States, at least, the most dangerous place for a child to find him or herself is at home with mom and mom's live-in boyfriend. It's obvious, right? Because the man has no connection to the child. And as far as he's concerned, the child is a competitor for, for mom's attention. So it's never, ever, seldom, should I say, a good situation. Anyway, why am I telling you this? Because I want to tell you the headline, the newspaper headline of the story is a restaurant manager sees bruised boy and writes, note, the parents are charged. The parents, did you hear that? The parents are charged. Yeah, they, they were charged by the police, but they're not parents. It's the mother and her boyfriend. They're not parents. Please note that Before 1962, this never would have appeared like this. The papers would have been precise. But because the declining culture, because the declining culture wants to erode the structure of the traditional family, the first thing it does is eliminate any precise definitions. And it has, by the way, this the New York Times did formally in instructions to uh, editors and to journalists and to writers that uh, any arrangement of people living together constitutes a family. Um, parents are anybody who lives with a child. And so this the newspaper journalist who wrote this article, um, and this is from June of this year, 2022, uh, they followed instructions to call these two people the boy's parents, the boy's parents, it's the boy's mom and the mom's boyfriend that makes a huge difference. And so, whenever you see statistics now that say, um, you know, uh, whatever percentage it is of children get abused by their fathers, don't believe it, it isn't true, they are abused by mom's boyfriend. But the new distortion of language calls that a father so it's it's worthwhile i think being really aware of how one simply cannot count any longer on trusting news reports of that kind and um, and and that's really uh, in in almost every area major distortion of how the news works I and mean, here is another example A few years ago, the New York Times, and the reason I speak about the New York Times is because it is the most um, significant and substantive water carrier for uh, socialistic and secular policies. But a few years ago, the New York Times ran a, a sort of editorial disguised as a news story. Uh, that said that majority, the majority of American women do not live with husbands. And the, the, the point of the story was that, you see, it's no longer needed. Long time ago, in those primitive, far-off days, women needed men, but now they don't. And the proof of it is that we're making such good progress in America, the majority of American women do not live with a husband. And um, you have to dig deeply into this. To discover, which I didn't do, but uh, it has been done, and uh, Thomas Sowell actually did part of it, and uh, other people worked on this. Uh, the um, how did the New York Times arrive at this figure that a majority of American women do not live with husbands? Well, they uh, kept on lowering the age of the women they were checking into using census data, uh, and eventually they took it down to the age of sixteen. Well, yeah, quite a lot of 16- and 17-year-old women do not live with husbands. That's true. But they were, the New York Times was going to do anything necessary in order to bring up the number of women without husbands up to 51%, so they can say the majority. And they also counted widows who, by definition, do not live with husbands, but they did one at one time. So they go from age 16 all the way up to elderly women whose husbands have died, and they count all of these as women who do not live with husbands. They also counted wives whose husbands were away in the military, and um, they also counted women whose husbands were in prison. And using these extremely creative techniques they finally got it to 51 percent of women were not living with a husband and now this was uh, they could call it most women or majority women and this was a news story and uh, this shows look the majority of women in america have realized they don't need husbands okay that's just how destructive this stuff is um The the San Francisco Chronicle re-ran that story with a headline, Women see less need for the old ball and chain. In other words, marriage is like a prison sentence. And um, look, this this picture of marriage and family as a burden uh, is not unique to the New York Times or the San Francisco Chronicle, Uh, This is is part of the message of the left, and this has been true ever since Karl Marx and uh, Friedrich Engels put out the Communist Manifesto and and Marx's book, Capital. Uh, All of these things are intending to undermine and ultimately destroy the existence of marriage and family as the fundamental unit of society. It's, uh, it's a reality. That is really what is happening, and uh, it's awful. Anyways, with, uh, with that background, we can um, – I've got one more thing to tell you, but I think maybe I'll tell you that inside the five rules, okay? So uh, I think we can go on to the five rules for raising great children. But I also, you know what, why don't I also just remind you of the website, and that is RabbiDanielLappen.com. And let me tell you what you're going to find there. You're going to find an online course called the Financial Prosperity Package. And that is something, it's it's 10 hours of video lessons from me, which you can take at your own speed and your own time. Um, With inflation, what it is, and and I think I've told you inflation is much higher than eight and a half percent. Eight and a half percent is the figure um, acknowledged by the government. But um, the reality is that the way of measuring inflation was substantially tampered with during the time that Newt Gingrich was Speaker of the House in the early 90s. And the reason they did that was they wanted to show a lower rate of inflation, so as that the cost of living adjustment made to social security recipients uh, would be less. And this was a way of uh, trying to minimize the deficit. All these are, in other words, what I'm telling you is that for an ordinary citizen like you or me, it is impossible. To delve into the machinations of government statistics and measurements and reports, uh, you've got to understand the Bureau of Labor Statistics, which produces the cost of living, the CPI, uh, the, the um, uh, that index, and uh, and and uh, other similar indices used for measuring inflation. These are staffed by thousands, not tens, thousands of people who morning to night are working out arcane and detailed ways of getting what their bosses want. And uh, you know, you've got a life, you you have a limited amount of time to devote to reading up on how uh, inflation is measured. And you you go with the the number. How can you not? You know, what alternative do we have? And the government says eight and a half percent. Let me just tell you, having devoted considerable amounts of time on your behalf to try and do this for you, I've got to tell you that uh, it's not good news, by the way. I've got to tell you that uh, at the moment, I would estimate that the actual rate of inflation is running close to 15% nearly double of what the government is acknowledging. And, um, and you know, it's. Uh, I'm recording this a week before the 4th of July weekend, and so uh, it's only another seven or eight or nine days, and you're going to be on the road maybe, you're going to be filling up gas. I think it's going to dawn on you also that the change in prices uh, is not 8.5%. It's a whole lot more than that. And uh, if you go to the market and you're going to buy... Uh, meat for hamburgers, you buy hot dogs, and whatever you're going to buy, you're going to notice as well the shrinkage of packaging, right? And the idea is that way, they don't raise the price, they reduce the amount you get, which is, again, just another example of inflation, but it's not reflected in the official government figure of eight and a half percent. So, just be aware that uh, if there is ever a time to try and figure out a way to increase your income a way to enhance your revenue a way to make more money and create more wealth now would be a really good time to do it because if you could give yourself an increase of 15% of your income maybe that's starting a side business a, a side hustle maybe it's getting a raise maybe it's making yourself more valuable I, I, there's a lot of things I can't go into them all here but uh, if there, if you can do that and increase yourself by 15% well then for you inflation is zero you've zeroed it out and you're able to keep pace with everything so there really is value in trying to increase your revenue, and uh, the Financial Prosperity online training course at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com is a very good place to start. And uh, secondly, in terms of gaining an understanding into Bible, understanding how it impacts your life, and how its permanent principles can be used profitably as you navigate your way through life. Uh, Look, I must tell you that um, I think we are watching the decline of materialism, and I, I think that more than ever, at the present time, understanding of the Bible, knowledge of the Bible, will stand you in very good stead more so than in 1960, because, you know, in 1960, things in America looked pretty good. And by extension, in the rest of the world, 1960, you know, in the United Kingdom, in most of Europe, even South America, various countries were having the ups and downs. But there's no comparison, you know, to what's going on right now everywhere. And so a a deeper understanding of what's happening and a... uh, an increase in your ability to wisely and effectively analyze what's going on. I do believe that the uh, Bible is a very helpful starting point. And so, again, at my website at rabbidanielappen.com, um, we have prepared for you something called Scrolling Through Scripture. And it's uh, it's really rather remarkable. Unit 1 takes us through the first 34 verses of Genesis. You might say, really? Like hours of study, which you can do at your own speed, to get through just 34 verses? Well, yeah, it picks up speed a little bit later, but so many fundamental principles are being laid out here. Things you need for your family and your finances, for your friendships, and for your fitness, and for your faith, all of that laid out in the first 34 verses. In fact, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that the first chapter of Genesis is 31 verses. Why didn't I stop at the end of uh, chapter 1 with 31 verses? Well, it turns out that the, the first three verses of chapter 2 are actually part of chapter 1. They really belong with chapter 1. Did you know that? Well, not only do I tell you that, but I'll show you how you can see it. And, uh, and then you will understand why you've got to do the first 34 verses all together. So it's called Scrolling Through Scripture. And uh, you'll find that in the online course section on the website, rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com. So do uh, visit, explore that, and see if that can enhance your life as much as I think it actually will do. So, uh, go ahead and explore the website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and um, let's move on to the five rules for raising great children. Rule number one. Rule number one is work on your marriage. It really does help your children. When children grow up and they see a passionate, loving committed marriage in their parents uh, it's a huge benefit to those children. I'm not going to cite all the studies you know what I think of studies and experts but there actually are uh, compelling studies that children who grow up in that kind of family where mother and father are married to one another and the marriage is a passionate loving committed marriage those kids have uh, notably improved outcomes uh, school-wise, behavior-wise, in every, in every possible area. Um, where this has practical impact is, for instance, uh, sometimes um, parents would consult me with a disagreement, <coughs> and that was really one of, uh, one of the main functions that I served as rabbi of my congregation years back, is um, helping to maintain marital peace by resolving any disputes that come up. And um, a dispute that is resolved by an outside party is much better than a dispute that is resolved by one party dominating the other or overwhelming the other. Uh, And so one of them was, and this used to happen quite often, um, where the, the, the husband would say, uh, I've got a business trip, but it's to you know I, I I won a sales award or whatever it was. It's to a really nice destination. It's f- three days, all expenses paid, and we're um, invited to bring our spouses along. And uh, she'd say, "Yeah, but you know the the our youngest is only two years old, and she's not used to me being away. She she expects me to be around." And uh, and so I just don't feel comfortable leaving her. Uh, The the, the answer is that um, animals work on a maternal instinct. People have to go beyond that. People have to understand that, yes, there is a maternal instinct, but um, your first priority is your husband, not your children. That is a difficult thing for a human female to, for a human mother, I should say, to learn because there's such a strong pull to that uh, new baby or that young child or to all the children that it's it's extremely difficult, but it nonetheless is correct. She absolutely should go, you know, the baby's going to do just fine with the grandparents or wherever, whatever arrangement you make, but there's no, no question, you know, barring certain uh, tough conditions that I don't you know, that I don't know about, but ordinarily in the situations I've described and encountered, I was always, um, always very big on um, on that happening. And for the older children, for the older children to see how much uh, mom and dad love being together with one another and how much they enjoy one another's company. Um, and, and, you know, it, 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 it was something... I grew up with, by the way, whenever my mom walked into the room, you could see my dad's dad's eyes light up like <laughs> no matter what was going on, but when she walked in, he perked up, he liked it and uh and and that was that's a good thing it's a very, very good thing uh also, I should point out that there is no Hebrew word for a single mother or a single father in the Lord's language. the word parent is a plural, there is no singular version signifying that the task is actually a two-person task it's a mother and a father task um also um i should add that again part of this part of constructing a really happy fulfilled a positive committed family um is obviously based on a on a deep connection between husband and wife and um something that not all of you lady happy warriors might know is that men are happiest with a woman who needs them in other words um the the idea that the feminist movement has been pushing for 50 years that you know uh, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle ha 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 very witty but uh, incredibly destructive to marriage and uh, this is one of the reasons that uh, uh, women who are extraordinarily successful financially do find difficulty in um, getting married and finding a great husband—they find it very, very difficult. Why? Because a man finds that being needed is uh, is, is hugely important. Not being needed is is fee- being made to feel unnecessary and redundant and that is just one step away from a feeling of total impotence which for a man is unbearable and so uh, uh, needing a husband needing your man is is a very wise thing for a smart wife to do Um, i'm going to tell you a, a true story it's um it's it's a sad story but it's shocking and and it's important that it happened and that we know about it. And um, this is a story that uh, was um, published originally by the New York Times. Yes, uh, here it is. Uh, it was published in, um, in the New York Times Weekly Magazine in May 2004. And here's how the story begins. It's entitled, One Very Tangled Post-9-11 Affair. It was the evening of September the 10th, 2002, when John Zazulka, Zazulka, a New York City firefighter, sat down with his wife Susan in their Staten Island home and told her that their marriage of 19 years was over. At least that's how Susan remembers it. The eve of the one-year anniversary of 9-11, the last night of the worst year of their lives, John, on the other hand, says it might have been a few weeks before or after, or who knows, maybe Susan even remembers it right, but so what? Uh, If so, he says, was just a coincidence, one of those things that everyone wants to see as a symbol of something, more than it is he isn't, he says, a big one for reading too much into things. Soon it became clear to Susan that the reason John left her was not as he originally told her that he had long been unhappy, or rather it became clear that it wasn't his only reason. A few months earlier, he had met and become involved with another woman, a woman living in Ronkonkoma, New York, named Deborah Amato. It is always somewhat mystifying, but not unusual, when a man leaves his wife for, a wife for a woman who seems similar to the one he has just left. Like Susan, Debbie was in her early 40s, very attractive, trim, a mother to four children, a stay-at-home mom who had hardly worked outside the home since the day she married her firefighter husband. Okay, Uh, what's the story? I'm not going to read the whole thing, obviously, but uh, to just uh, give you the story, what happened is that in the direct aftermath of uh, that 9-11 horrible day um, when so many New York firefighters lost their lives, all of a sudden, the fire department in New York, which sort of sees itself as as a brotherhood, you know, men who put themselves in danger, it's rather like the military, and all of a sudden, they had a a large number of widows, like overnight, all of a sudden. uh, There was this big number of um, families that had been left fatherless and husbandless because of the uh, attacks of 9-11 and the firefighters who died in the Twin Towers. And so the... um, The fire department did something which on the surface of it would appear to be, you know, perfectly normal and perfectly natural. Had they consulted your rabbi, uh, he would have told them how to avoid the problem. What did they do? They, for every widow, they assigned another firefighter to to help her, to get, you know, just help her deal with the paperwork. And I mean, you know know what is involved when, when somebody passes away. There's a huge amount of paperwork, there's bank accounts, there's insurance issues. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's just can be overwhelming. And so every widow from 9-11 in the New York Fire Department was assigned a firefighter a colleague of her a late husband to help her. And he'd go there a few times a week and sit down with her and go through the paperwork and you know, talk with the children a bit, and just just be a you know, just just be there to help. If they would have consulted your rabbi, would have said great idea. accepting you must assign two. There should never be a man by himself. It should always be two men. Why? Well, it's perfectly obvious, and that is that um, for a man it is powerfully sexual to be able to help a woman. I'm I'm using that word advisedly because. I want to get to the core of it. I want you to really understand what's going on here. Um, And so for a man to be in a position of being needed by this woman and for her to be grateful to him and to look up at him with admiration and gratitude for helping her get through this stuff, that is um, powerfully, powerfully moving. And of course, for the woman to suddenly have a guy there with broad shoulders who is It's all but unstated. He's a replacement for the husband. Husband's gone. Here's this guy. And I could tell you even more about it, but that's enough for now. Bottom line is that the New York Fire Department in the months following 9-11 was beset by a huge number of divorces. And this article in New York Times from 2004 uh, starts off telling the story of one, you know, this this woman Susan Zasalka, whose husband had been assigned to a 9/11 widow named Debbie, and he. And the funny thing is that Susan and Debbie they were very very similar, similar life paths, similar age, similar everything. Even the author says they even looked similar, and so it's not as if. Um, as if uh, John Zizulka left his wife Susan, you know, for a 23-year-old hottie. No, not at all, because there's something even much more important than hotness, as they say, um, and that is being needed. And that, I, I want you to know just how very powerful this thing is, and that, um, and you know, so what, why didn't his own wife need him? Because, you know, they've got an established household. Everything's running normally. Um, and you understand how this happens, that a husband and wife can easily fall into a, a pattern where uh, they, they've, they've formed a very nice little socioeconomic unit. The rent gets paid or the mortgage gets paid, and they—you uh, know maybe they go to church together every third Sunday or whatever it is. But is there a case of sort of primal palpable need no not at all that's gone but in the case of the 9-11 widows there really was so please just uh, be aware um, the culture the culture is moving us towards women being proud not to need men the smart happy warrior wife is proud to need her husband Really, it makes a huge difference. Um, Think about it, and you'll see that this is very, very relevant, very applicable. So uh, just reject this message you hear from the culture all the time. Women don't need men. Um, You know, men and women in marriage are exactly the same. Stop it already. This is bad for intimacy. It's bad for the marriage. And apropos of today's topic, it's bad for your children. Okay, that's rule number one of the five rules. Work on your marriage all the time, constantly, okay? All right, let's go to rule number two. Rule number two is be on the same page. For heaven's sake, be on the same page. Make sure that you don't turn your uh, child into ammunition in an argument between the two of you. Make sure that your children know that when they get a an instruction or a direction from either father or mother it in that both parents are solidly behind that decision it should never work that a child who has been disciplined or directed can go to the other spouse, can go to the other parent and say, mommy said this, do I really have to do this? And the worst thing in the world is if the father says, no, no, come on, come in here. I'll talk to mommy. It'll be all right. It's a disaster. Uh, Very difficult to recover from. If you've been doing this, please know that the the repair is going to take more than a year, depending on the age of your children. And so you really have to, to, to be very, very much aware of that. Um, if you're interested in the biblical source of this, go to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 18. And it's talking there about a rebellious and uh, a problematic. A child is just not listening to his parents. And what it says is it's fascinating. I here I should tell you. That most Bible translations of Deuteronomy 21:18 get it wrong. Um, I'm pretty sure the King James Bible gets it correct, and the Hebrew, of course, is what I go to. And what it says is, so if this is a bad son, a rebellious son, who does not listen to the voice of his parents, you'd think it would say. Or he doesn't listen to the voice of his mother and father. And I think that's how the NIV translates it. Uh, but no, you know what the Hebrew says? He, This is a rebellious child. He does not listen to the voice of his father and to the voice of his mother. You want a rebellious child? You want a problematic child? Make sure the voice of the father and the voice of the mother are different. That's why the text of Deuteronomy 21.18 uh, phrases it in that way. Uh, this rebellious son, bad son, doesn't listen to the voice of his father and, he, and to the voice of his mother. Yeah, they're different. Try and avoid that. You, you don't want... Every parental decision is exactly that. It's a parental decision. Um, a, uh, a family, uh, through the husband and the wife make a decision. It's not a decision by one foisted on the other. And so, yes, you and your spouse should definitely discuss things. But let's imagine that your spouse has not discussed something with you. And just because of the exigency of the moment, uh, your spouse was called on to make a a ruling. No, because of this, you may not go play with Johnny this afternoon because you were. At that point, um, your role as the spouse is to back that up 100%, even if you think it was wrong. And then afterwards, privately, when the two of you are alone, you say, "Let's talk about what happened this afternoon. Um, tell me why you you reacted the way you did. And tell me why did you make the consequence of that behaviour that um, that our our a child can't go and play with his friend this afternoon." And then talk about that. And this is part of the way you grow in your marriage and you grow as husband and wife and you grow as parents. It's a very good thing. You discuss it and you keep at this. And and eventually you'll arrive at a modus operandi where you'll say, okay, you know, um, there may be some exceptions. But generally speaking, this is what we have to you know, this is the way we should do this. That's wonderful. That's exactly uh, the way these things should happen. Um, So if your spouse makes an out loud decision without having discussed it, um, you know, in, in, with you first. First thing you do is agree and back, it, back them up. And then afterwards, you have a conversation with your spouse. You can say, I don't feel that was right. We ought to have discussed it first. Um, you know, it's tempting to reward children with candy and toys. And it's very frustrating with a, a mom who's at home. Who deals with the children all day and particularly if you're not homeschooling and the children come home from school and they're hot and bothered and there's Homework to be done and all this sort of thing and uh, For dad then to come home and offer treats when there may have been issues during the day that she wants to discuss with him um, you know, don't don't reward with candy and toys, you know unless you've both decided on it in which case It's a treat from both parents, not from one. Don't try and score points off your spouse with the child. You're doing those things really cost you in terms of family harmony and tranquility, in terms of marital satisfaction. Don't do those things. Don't act unilaterally, please. You are a husband and you are a wife. You are parents. Um, Look, I'm not saying moms and dads agree all the time, of course not, but do that in private so that the children only see a united front, right? So, you you know, you and your spouse will grow by discussing and figuring out, um, children are God's way of ensuring you don't stay a child forever yourself. Children are God's way of making you grow. So this is a wonderful thing to have constant child-raising discussions with your spouse, in which you, you know, throw out some old ways, find new ways, discuss ways, arrive at consensus, and um, don't ever, you know, if you're the dad, don't ever say to your children, you know, mother, your mommy doesn't like, mom doesn't like you coming to the table in pajamas, you know, whatever it is, don't do that, because again, you're stating that you're on the other side, you don't agree, have you heard people say? It? I hear it all the time when we're guests in people's homes. We hear all the time people say, uh, um, "You know, um, you know, go and uh, go and put on a shirt. You know, your father doesn't like you coming to the table like that, <laughs> or whatever, um, whatever it is." So try and avoid that kind of thing, okay? I'm, I'm hoping you got the, you've got the idea here, right? It, it's, um, so number one was work on your marriage. Number two is please be on the same page with respect to your children. Uh, number three is don't disagree or argue in front of your children. In fact, in front of your children, you must honor one another. So rule number three is honor one another, and part of that means you don't disagree with your spouse in front of the children, okay? Um, Get used to saying things like, uh, if you're speaking to your child, say, we think, or we want you to do this. Um, Also, in public, in general, to other people, don't say, my daughter, my son, my home, my house. Always say, our son our children our daughter our house our motor car whatever it is but emphasize <coughs> emphasize the the unity and never miss an opportunity to build up the honor of the children for the other spouse never miss an opportunity um you know if um if you're waiting for supper and dad hasn't come home right Mother can either say, I don't know what it is with your father. He can't seem to come home on time. Or the mother could also say, do you have any idea of what a wonderful father you have who is willing to work so hard that we can have all the things we need? Think about it. If he wasn't taking care of us, all the money he makes, he could spend on whatever he wants. Do you think there's anything he'd like to buy that he hasn't been able to? I think there is likewise um get up at a, at the end of a meal and uh, father makes a point of thanking mom for the for the dinner thank you for that wonderful dinner uh, and then even say the the children and i really appreciate how much effort you put into giving us delightful nutritious tasty great dinners you don't miss an opportunity to to build up the children's respect for the other spouse okay so, uh, work on your marriage is number one. Be on the same page is number two. Honor one another by not disagreeing in front of the children is number three. Uh, here's number four. Keep your word. You, you know, if you haven't started raising children yet, you probably think, what's so hard about that? I keep my word all the time. Um, you will discover that what I said is true. God really gives us children to make us better people. And uh, how, what does keeping your word mean? Well, it's so easy when you are frustrated and you're being pulled in three directions. You know, you may have four children or five or two, whatever it is. But it's just one of those days you're not really coping and, and the children are frustrating you and, and it's just one of those days. And it's so easy to say uh, you're going to bed without dinner for the next three days. Look, you shouldn't have said it. Don't make flamboyant or undoable threats. But once you've done that, you have to keep your word. Because otherwise, little by little, your children learn. Your word means nothing. And so that's a disaster for discipline. And they don't learn internal self-discipline, which is one of the great gifts you can give your children, is that they grow up with self-discipline. All of that comes from keeping your word. Um, You know, don't say, if you do that one more time, we're cancelling the Disneyland trip. Your child knows you've already bought the tickets and you committed to the trip and you've blocked out time off work. You're not going to cancel the trip. But if you say that, it's really bad. Don't speak if you don't mean it. Don't parent by bribing and threatening. It's not the way to do it. You know, obviously, you do. You know, the, the smart thing everybody knows this is: uh, you praise your children every time they do something right, make a big fuss every time they do little by little. They learn that that's the big thing, that's the good thing. But um, discipline consistently and sanely, not insanely, but sanely, uh, you cannot you cannot parent a child by ignoring bad behavior or infractions uh, day after day after day and then finally when you just can't stand it anymore and you lose it uh, you come up with this monstrous huge punishment it do- it doesn't make sense it doesn't work just think about speeding if everybody who uh, speeds on the highway everybody who speeds on the highway uh, would get a uh, you know $20 fine right there you'd never get away with it there's always you speed you get a $20 fine you'd you'd see that people would become disciplined towards driving within the speed limit. Uh, But what some countries do is, you know, they have very few uh, uh, people on the road, police on the road. But every now and then when they catch somebody, they charge them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars in fine or they uh, do something to their license. A huge punishment every now and then is totally ineffective compared to a reasonable punishment on a completely reliable and consistent basis okay so uh, there are work on your marriage is number one be on the same page as number two number three is honor your spouse and no disagreements in front of the children that's part of honoring your spouse uh, finding ways to honor your spouse number four is keep your word just keep your word you got to do that and number five Number five is family meetings. Have regular family meetings. How regular? Um, you know, once a week is pretty good. Once every two weeks or once every month, um, you know, if, depending on the age of the children and the structure of the family. But um, a family meeting is a really good idea and nothing interferes with it. And for heaven's sake, do not have your phone in front of you at the family meeting. Your attention is entirely on the meeting. All you should have in front of you is your notebook, for your family meeting notebook with a date on today's, on today's page. And you've prepared an agenda that you've already laid out, some of the things you want to discuss. Uh, you speak about things that have been going well in the family, um, things... Things that, you know, you and your spouse don't feel have been going so well. Make it fun. Let each person, invite them to speak. Ask questions. It doesn't come naturally for anybody, but you have to work on it. And then after a while, family meetings become so fun. Children really enjoy it. They know they've got your attention 100%. And sometimes it can even be tied to a special dinner. Um... Uh, I used to make homemade French fries very often for family meetings and to this day my children will still say and I don't think they're just saying this to me. I I think this is a definitive consensual opinion on uh, gastronomic expertise. My children insist that the French fries I made from scratch um, were the best they've ever tasted. I, I measured the temperature of the oil. I chose exactly the right potatoes. I, um, I sliced them in a very specific way, etc., etc. But when things like that are tied to family meetings, it also makes it fun. Um, you can talk about uh, things having to do with the home. The lawn isn't looking good. Uh, dad has to work harder for the next two months. Uh, the family meeting helps you make sure your family never sinks down to being no more than a socioeconomic unit of a socialistic leaning society. So yes, of course, there's chores, there's work, there's all kinds of, of routine and mundane things that go into keeping a life running smoothly and keeping a family running smoothly. But um, a family is also a place for security and comfort and, uh, and happiness and delight and and the family meeting is one of those times where you can where you can do those things. If there is ever going to be, you know, there's let's say there's going to be a, a family vacation, so you would announce it at a family meeting. We always, you know, do a, a summer boating trip in British Columbia, and um, we always made it a family meeting to announce the next. Year. Usually, it would be about January or February, uh, in the middle of the winter, and during the fact we got a big announcement for this family meeting. And uh, what is it? Well, um, we, uh, we, we've made arrangements for this year's, for the summer's family boating trip. This is where we're going to be doing, what we're going, and et cetera, et cetera. All right, so I'm hoping that you get the idea. Those are the five principles. How you apply these in, in your individual life and in your own circumstances is, of course, up to you, because I know. That a happy warrior like you will have no trouble doing that, applying it, figuring out what have I taught today that is applicable to your family, what isn't, how can you apply it, and uh, how can you go at it and beyond. I've done these very quickly. I've told you the five rules. I'll tell them to you again. I've given you examples and a little bit of background, but I could talk for an entire show on each one of these rules. I really could. But I don't think it's necessary because I think you get the idea and you are able to do this. Now, what, I'll tell you one of the frustrating things is what do you do if uh, you know a family? You know, let's say you've got a, uh, a brother-in-law, your sister and brother-in-law are making an absolute disaster of the kids they're raising, your nieces and nephews. And, um, uh, you know, what, and it's frustrating for you to be there because you see them making all these mistakes flamboyant unmanageable threats if you do this this will throwing out a punishment well for that you're not going to get another candy for the next 10 years uh, you know and you you know they're making a mistake on these things but you certainly as an outsider you certainly can't say anything well one of the things you might be able to do i'm hoping is say hey you know we get a lot of benefit from uh, the rabbi daniel app and show here's how you can listen to it um, you know, maybe that might be work work, and then maybe they'll listen to this show as well. Um, you know, who knows? But um, the five rules again: work on your marriage. It's so important a part of raising good children. Be on the same page, right? Don't disagree with your your, your spouse. Um, be on the same page in terms of child raising rules and principles. Uh, Remember Deuteronomy chapter 21 verse 18. Uh, Number three is honor one another. Mother and father should go out of their way to honor one another and to show respect and, and love and admiration to one another. And that gets modeled for the children. Number four is keep your word. And number five is family meetings. Take them seriously And train yourself to listen carefully while your children are speaking because your rapt attention is precisely what will encourage them to talk up in a in a family meeting it's great for sibling relationships it's great for every aspect of family relationships so um, family again it's a discipline it's not easy Uh, busy families there are all kinds of activities and events but try and lock yourself in. Maybe, you know, maybe once a week is, is hard to do. So, you know, start off maybe once every two or three weeks. But whatever it is, put them on the calendar. Um, if you keep a, a calendar in the on the fridge in the kitchen, make sure it's there. Just so everybody knows when exactly the family meeting is. And make it something they look forward to. Um, sometimes Susan Lappin would have a... Uh, uh, a, a tray of her, f- you know, favorite cookies that she'd have baked specifically for the family meeting. And uh, there's milk or, or chocolate milk or whatever it is. Um, but it's f- make it fun to be at the family meeting. Those, my dear happy warriors are the five rules for raising great kids. And uh, I hope that they will be useful either for you or for people, you know, and love. And I, um, That takes us as far as we go for today, wishing you a wonderful week of growth in your, well, family, that's what we're talking today, growth in your family, in your finances, in your faith, in your friendships, and in your physical fitness as well. Thanks so much for being part of the show. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.